Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, we'll read three verses here and ask the question, why is salvation so great? What's so great about salvation, our salvation specifically? All right, let's get into this this morning. Hebrews 2 and verse number 1. I'll give you some time to get there. It is somewhere in the New Testament. All right, you all there? All right, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. You pray with me and for me this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. I pray that you bless the preaching of your word. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we have uh, the opportunity to send it over uh, the Internet and those that are online or watching. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. And, Lord, I pray that you bless. If there's one that, that does not know where they're going to go when they die, they get saved. And, Lord, for those that are in Christ to really appreciate what they have in salvation, Lord, it's a blessing to have a hope, hope of eternity, hope of heaven. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse number three is our text verse. We're going to use, as some preachers say, this as a springboard uh, into the question, why is salvation so great? And I don't know, even at 53 years of age, if I can even begin to understand uh, the uh, the magnitude of my salvation and understand uh, what really Christ has done for me. I mean, just it's too too uh, it's too marvelous. It's too wonderful for us to comprehend uh, the great depths that Christ uh, uh, went to and the great price that He paid for my salvation, giving me something that He did not deserve, unmerited favor, unmerited grace. And giving me an inheritance and uh, giving you, if you're saved today, an inheritance and an incredible blessing to be, if you would, a part of a family, a family of God. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because uh, I preach this with a dimness of understanding of what it really is. Although I enjoy salvation, I enjoy what I have in Christ. And the more I read the scriptures, the more I appreciate it. But I feel like I, uh, I feel like a child when I try to explain, even to my own self, what this really is and, and, uh, and the hope of heaven. I've probably have done over 200 funerals in my ministry. And, and I've probably counseled over uh, 500 people in my ministry and maybe more. And and preach to uh, literally uh, thousands of people through the years if you just combine them all. And, and yet still, uh, I look at this salvation that we have, and I still am at all of how much I don't appreciate and what it really is. And I just uh, I ponder it, and I think about it. And it's, a, it's that song that the, uh, the, the people thought he was insane that he wrote and penned out uh, on, a, on a jail cell uh, uh, back uh, some centuries ago, uh, the love of God. It's an incredible thought that he loved us and what he did for us. And so why is the question, why is salvation so great? Because in verse number three, how shall we escape if we neglect, and the phrase here, so great salvation, so great salvation. I have in my office a book 
called The Dying Testimonies of Saved and Unsaved. I've lent that book out, and uh, sometimes I get it back, and I have to get another copy. Sometimes I don't get it back, and I get another copy, because it's just one of those books that just has a resource in my office, and I've read through that. And it's one of those books that you just put down, and you want to thank God for your salvation when you hear the last words of people that have died, not only those that were saved, but also those uh, that were lost and on their way to hell. One of those men that died without Christ was a man by the name of William Pope. Uh, he died in 1797, and it was noted in his life that he was a leader of a company of people that loved to destroy anything Christ-like. In fact, uh, Brother Terry Freed sent me a, uh, a video of out in Washington, uh, those that are burning Bibles and kicking Bibles and trying to destroy. And, it, and it's, it's not a far uh, cry, if you would, from going to destroy property to destroy the Bibles because it's all anti-God. It is anti Christ. We, we understand that as Bible believers. But this man, William Pope, lived in 1797. In fact, he died in 1797. And one of his exercises was that he loved to kick Bibles on the floor and kick Bibles and destroy Bibles and tear them up. And he friends, the friends uh, in, in this uh, society would, would, would pillage churches and destroy things that had anything to do with Christ. Well, the friends who were present at his death in that chamber, spoke of it as a scene, and I'm quoting, as a terror as he died when he cried his last words. And it's interesting that even in his death, there was no repentance and really even no remorse. He said this, quote, I have no contrition. I cannot repent. God will damn me. I know the day of grace is past. You see who one, you see one who is damned forever. Oh, eternity, oh, eternity, nothing for me but hell. Come eternal torments. I hate everything God has made, only I have no hatred for the devil. I wish to be with him. I long to be in hell. Do you not see? Do you not see? Do you not see him? He's coming for me. Now, again, I don't know how true and what he saw, but that was his last words. Voltaire uh, was a French uh, philosopher, an infidel, and one of uh, uh, the most uh, uh, fertile uh, and uh, fertile and uh, talented writers of his time. And it's interesting about uh, Voltaire, uh, he, uh, uh, he uh, uh, hated uh, Christ. In fact, he boasted uh, that in his time that in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. Uh, and my single hand shall destroy the edifice. It took 12 apostles to rear was shortly after his death in the very house, by the way, in which he died, uh, the Geneva Bible Society started to print Bibles in the very home that he died in. Go figure that. And here's what he said, for all the wealth of Europe, I would not see another infidel die. The physician uh, started to uh, take down the words of what he was saying. And uh, here's the desperate plea of his last words when he died. Quote, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six more months of life. Then I shall go to hell. And you will go with me. Oh, Christ. Oh, Christ. These quotes are horrifying. 
And I, I and there's there's many many more that I could uh, Hobbes uh, Calvin Hobbes I believe or or the, Brit- the British philosopher Hobbes he said something similar to Voltaire when he said these words I'm standing before the most horrifying edge of eternal darkness and I fear that I have been abandoned by both God and man last words of Hobbes. I'm, sim- I'm simply saying that that they ignored something that was given to them. They ignored something, if you would, it was offered to them. It was a salvation. As the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse number uh, 3, it was a great salvation. A great salvation. And what a shame it would be to live your entire life separated uh, uh, from anything godly and not wanting anything uh, uh, to do with Christ and then die and go to hell and then live for eternity without Christ, still separated from God. And yet people in this world every day leave without Christ and they die lost and undone without God, without Christ. A few hours before entering into the homeland, and this is the quote, homeland, Dwight L. Moody caught a glimpse of that city. And he, his son was with him when he said these words, quote, earth recedes, heaven opens for me. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. Here's what his son said. His son is standing right by his side. Father, no, father, you're dreaming. No, you're just dreaming. And he says, no, I'm not dreaming. Quote, I am not dreaming. I have, I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. In short time, he went into death. And his last words, quote, this is my triumph. This is my coronation day. It is glorious. I mean, incredible difference between Voltaire and Dwight L. Moody. I was with, uh, uh, we were here several years, seven years ago, I uh, got the call that Norma Holbert had a massive stroke. It was Sunday morning. I was preaching. I got the text. I went right to the hospital. And in the uh, emergency waiting area, uh, the doctor came out and they whispered to me as something like this. It's like she fell off a four-story building on her head. She, she, cannot, she cannot talk. She cannot hear. I said, okay. I walk into the room. J.R. came. He's in heaven now. Hug me, Pastor. I'm glad you're here. And Norma's there. Vitals are still on, but her brain is gone. Mind is gone. We had one, one sweet prayer there. And I stepped back out, and the doctor came up and said, she's most likely not going to... Um, uh, uh, ever be able to come back. I said, okay. I left the service Sunday night, went back over to the hospital. About that, that time, they moved up to the hospice, and I went into the, uh, into the room, and the family was gathered there. And uh, I just felt led to take John chapter 14 and kneel down by her side. J.R. was right behind me, and I started reading John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And a tremendous passage of scripture. When I got to the verse number three, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Norma sat up, sat up, and she gasped, and she smiled, and she looked above our heads, and she's pointing above our heads. And I'm saying, you're seeing 
you're seeing verse number three right now. I continue to read. She lay back down, closed her eyes. We were all just amazed at what we just saw. And the doctor came in, checked her vitals, and the nurse came in, checked her vitals, and said, she's gone. I said, I know where she's at. <laughs> it's a so great salvation. John Knox uh, lived for Christ. If you study anything about John Knox, he was a nut. But he was a screwed on the right bolt. And he preached Christ. Let me got that one. Okay. <laughs> Uh, that's something I heard years ago. I just repeated it. I never said that in a long time, all right? But, uh, and, uh, and so he lived for Christ, and he died uh, for Christ, and he lived a life that was above reproach, and he called sin, sin. John Wesley, the same thing, quote, he says, the best of all this is God is with us. Farewell. Farewell. Why? Because it was a great salvation. Charles Wesley, the father of the Methodist church years ago, quote, I shall be, this is what he said when he died, I shall be satisfied with thy likeness. Satisfied. Satisfied. Tremendous testimonies. Tremendous. And so there are two kinds of people in this world, and we know this. There's the saved and there's the lost. Okay? There are the redeemed and there are the damned. Two categories of people. And the question that is being asked from this passage of Scripture that we're asking, why is salvation so great? Why is it that God has given us this salvation? But what is so great about it? And focusing on this salvation that God has given uh, to us. And we ought to just thank God for so, so, so many principles. And I can't unpack all of these. I'm not going to try to. But if you would, meet me in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Why is salvation so great? Number one, our salvation is great because of the prophecy it fulfilled. Let me say it again. Our salvation is great because of the prophecy it fulfilled. The Apostle Paul said these words, that he is not beating the air, not wasting his time. Okay, we have a we have a a salvation that was predicted, a salvation that has prophecy, if you would, attached to it. Okay, Jesus didn't just show up unannounced; he showed up prophetically, fulfilling pro- Bible prophecies. First Peter chapter one, verse number uh, one, watch, uh, verse number three: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and a faith not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith. Unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you rejoice, uh, you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, uh, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though ye now see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your salvation, listen to this, your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation, listen to the words here, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come Unto you. 
So that's an incredible thought right there. Here is the Old Testament prophets that were searching the, uh, about the grace that was going to be coming to these group of pe- this group of people. Peter is saying that the salvation that you receive, the salvation that you get, Jesus Christ, uh, is, is the very thing that the great men of God in the past tried to figure out. They looked at the scriptures. They were getting, if you would, uh, revelations from God. They were getting prophecies about what was going to come. And they they couldn't understand it. Jeremiah searched diligently uh, and inquired. Daniel inquired and searched diligently. Amos then also searched diligently. Ezekiel and Hosea and down through the prophets from the Old Testament trying to understand what this salvation was. What is this salvation? That doesn't mean they weren't saved, but they couldn't understand this salvation the way you understand salvation because they lived before the Christ came. They couldn't understand all of it. They just knew something was there. Something magnificent was there, and they searched diligently. You know what that means? That means they were up late at night trying to figure it out. They were searching diligently. Something's coming. Some salvation's coming in the future, and I can't figure it out. One preacher said it this way, that the Old Testament prophets explained it by looking at two mountains, okay? Mount Calvary, okay, and Mount Olivet. And they didn't see the valley between the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives. They saw the two mountaintops, but they did not see all of the time between those two events. That's what we're in this morning. A age, a, a dispensation, a, a dispensing of time that you and I are enjoying what we have today. We don't go to Jerusalem to offer our sacrifices to get God to forgive us for another year. No, we, we, we have God living inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of our bodies. That's something that they did not have in the Old Testament. They couldn't see the valley between those two peaks, but they could see the peaks. They could see the distance. They couldn't grasp that the Messiah who would come and, and, and would suffer for uh, the sins of many and then he would ascend into heaven and come back 2,000 years uh, later to reign in his glory as the king of kings and the lord of lords. They, could, they couldn't see that. But they searched and they looked. They could only see just the peaks. Let me give you an example how the Lord Jesus Christ illustrates this. Look, if you would, in Luke 4. Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, and keep your finger there and find Isaiah chapter 61. Luke chapter 4, I hope I'm not boring you today, but look in Luke chapter number 4. Get your finger there and go to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm glad you're taking notes. This is good. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ about to announce his ministry. He's already performed many miracles, and now he walks into the synagogue, and he opens the book. He opens, okay, can we say it this way, the Bible, the Old Testament, and he finds where it reads in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse number 1. Now, watch what it says. This is what he would have seen, and the 
the, the, the priests were there, the scribes were there, and he's reading out of this book. Watch what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now look in verse number two. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that uh, mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now watch what Jesus read. Go back to Luke chapter 4. Watch what it says. He comes to Nazareth, verse number 16. Are you all here? Okay, verse number 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet, what? Isaiah. And we can talk about Isaiah a little bit later on how that worked. And, uh, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of the sight of the blind, and has set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stops. And then he closed the book. And he gave it into the minister and sat down. The eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why didn't he finish the verse? It wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. He only went to the acceptable year of the Lord in verse number two of Isaiah 61. But he didn't preach about the day of vengeance of our God. Can I say it this way? He referenced, if you would, the first peak. He did not reference the second peak. There is something coming after Mount Calvary, if you would the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was going to offer a salvation to not only the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And there was a span of time that was going to come that he is going to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He is going to, if you would, bind up the brokenhearted. He is proclaim liberty to those in captivity. Uh, he is going to open the prisons of them that are bound. He is going to fulfill the prophecies Concerning himself. Why is salvation so great? Because of the prophecies it fulfilled. It's a powerful thought. It's easy to see why the Old Testament prophets missed it. They couldn't get this. I mean, they looked, but they couldn't get it. With that, look in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse number 2. Daniel 9. Ryan and I had a good Bible study last night. Him and I talked a little bit about this. Daniel 9, verse number 2. And I appreciate that, brother. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel. Now, let me, let me before we go here, uh, too far into this. Uh, Daniel is in captivity. He's in Babylon. He is uh, a counselor uh, to the king, if you would. There's now going to be a an exile back to Jerusalem. It's predicted in the book of Jeremiah. 
And we know that he's, he knows that's coming. And it was going to be 70 years. You can count the time from when they were brought from Babylon in 586 BC, uh, to, uh, rather from Jerusalem to Babylon. 70 years later, they were going to have the ability to go back. Now, all of them went back, but they were going to go back. Now, watch this. So he gets this prophecy and watch what he says in verse number uh, one and verse number two. And I understood by the books, the number of the years where the word of the Lord came to who? Jeremiah, the prophet, that he should accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he says 70 years. OK, it's time to go. Now, he's too old. He can't go back, but he knows it's coming. Look at verse number three. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I want to know this. I want to see this. How many have ever approached God's word like that? Lord, show me something out of this book. How many have ever humbly came to God's word? Say, God, reveal to me. Show me. Illuminate. Give me something from your word. This is what he's saying. God, I know it's true. I know you're coming. We're going to go back. But I, I, wanna, I, wa- I want you to know how humble I am, God, because I know something big is coming. I know it is. Look down at verse number 23 of the same chapter. And at the beginning of the, thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I came to show thee, the angel here, Gabriel, speaking to him, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. I want you to listen to this, Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. No, Daniel is what? He's not a Gentile. He's a what? He's a Jewish man. He's a well-aged Jewish man. He has been in Babylon since he was a young little boy, taken from Jerusalem. And he's talking about his people. Watch what it says. And upon thy holy city, and watch this, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish their transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring everlasting righteousness and the seal of division and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. How about, how many understand that there's a lot that's going to happen? <laughs> there's a lot right there. He says, 70 weeks are determined. What's that mean? Don't stay, just stay with me. I know I'm not standing on my head and trying to keep your attention. This is heavy stuff right now, but just stay with me. The numbers are really cool. 70 weeks, 70 weeks of seven. Okay. 70 weeks. So, so you take a, a 70 times seven, you got 490 years. Okay. 70 weeks. Now watch this. The word determined is there for a reason. It's set. It's going to happen. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. So he says, start the clock. Something's going to happen here. 70 weeks. And then if you look at verse number uh, uh, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So it's interesting as you can get yourself, you can break your neck on a couple of verses here. So he separates these two time periods. He says, okay, he says, you've got seven weeks and then you got three score and two weeks. So you've got 62 weeks and you've got seven weeks. They're split up for a reason. Okay. So at Xerxes, I'm back, back in Babylon says, all right, you guys can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Go right ahead and do it. Okay. From that time, there's a date given to that. There was four, if you would, exiles, but it worked. The math works out perfectly when you convert it to the lunar calendar or the Jewish calendar, 360 days, not 365. Okay. That the commandment to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem took 49 years. 
or seven times seven. Are you all with me so far? Clear as mud. That's the first time period. Second time period is 62 weeks or three score and two weeks. So the whole thing, he says, there's determined 70 weeks, but we're going to add some numbers up. You got seven weeks to go back and rebuild the walls in troublous times. You're going to have to rebuild those walls. It's going to take about 50 years, specifically 49 years. But there's going to be 62 weeks from when that's finished to the coming of Messiah. Watch what it says in verse 25. Now, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, rather to build Jerusalem under Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. The last part of verse number 25 is dealing with the 49 years. Okay. It's going to be hard. You can read about this in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra and and Haggai. Okay. Those three books are dealing with post-exilic books. My kids were asking, what is, what does this mean? Exile. They're coming back from, from Babylon, going back to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, 49 years in total. But we have another number, verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. 62 weeks later, 62 times seven, okay, uh, which would be 434 years. He says 434 years after that, Messiah is going to come. Now, this is where it gets really cool. You add seven or 49 years to the 434 years or the total of 69 weeks, it comes to the very day Jesus walked into Jerusalem or actually rode upon an ass into Jerusalem as, as, as the, uh, the, the, the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. It works out to that date, to the day, an incredible miracle that God gave Daniel. So 69 weeks were fulfilled. I know I'm blowing your mind right here. Okay. 69 weeks were fulfilled from the time that Xerxes says, go back to Jerusalem to the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. 69 weeks have been fulfilled. But wait a minute. There's 70 weeks determined. So we're missing a week. Well, what happened there? It's in the next verse. Now, folks, listen, when people, when the Old Testament prophecies, prophets looked, they couldn't see us. They couldn't see this so great salvation, but they did see the coming of Messiah, according to that verse right there. And they did see something else. They saw a tribulation period. They did. They saw that. They did not see what took place between the crucifixion and the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, how long is the tribulation period? Anyone know? Seven years. You'll find the phrase 42 months, 1260 days. These are all references to half of the tribulation. You'll find this in Revelation. You'll find it here in Daniel. So there is a time period coming that will be one seven-year period of time. Can I say it this way? One week. But 70 weeks are determined 69 have been fulfilled. We're waiting for, I'm not really waiting for it, but one more week is going to happen. We're going to be gone before this week starts. Okay? But the prophecies were given to these Old Testament prophets, but they couldn't understand it. They searched diligently, but they didn't understand it all. Look in verse number 26. Actually, verse number 26, yeah. Uh, actually, go to, uh, to the uh, verse 27. Oh, boy. Okay, uh, and I got to finish. Okay, verse 20. This is just the first point. 
Daniel 9, 27, watch what it says. And he, okay, and he, if, look at verse 26 first. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the what? Prince shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a what? Flood unto the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So we're getting some clarity on what the 70th week looks like. It's going to be a flood. It's going to be a destruction of the city. It's going to be the end of a war and desolations. They're determined. So these things are going to happen. So how's it going to look? Verse, verse 27. Verse 27 says this. And he, if you want to take a little pen or a pencil, and you circle that he, and take a little arrow and point back to the word prince. Okay, that's the antecedent. Who is this prince? Well, he, okay, shall confirm a covenant with many for one what? One, there's that week right there. There is a 70th week, but it's going to be done through a covenant that's going to be made with many. We believe Israel, because in the next, in the very verse it says there's going to be oblations. In fact, it says in verse number 27, and in the midst of the week shall Calls the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Hold your thought there and go to Matthew 24. Okay? Why is so salvation so great? Because of the prophecies it fulfills. Okay, we're just not up here saying Jesus is the only way to heaven just because it's good to say. There is prophecies, detailed prophecies that predicted this, which is incredible. 3,500-year-old prophecies that are coming to fulfill, fulfillment here would be our lifetime, the 70th week of Daniel. And as Bible believers, we're, we believe we're out of here before that happens, and I praise God for that. But 69 weeks are determined. Daniel says, okay, where's, the, where's this other week? Well, it's of the prince, the, the people, the prince. Who's the prince? Well, he's going to confirm a covenant with many. He's, he's going to have a peace treaty with, the, with, the, with this, this nation, Israel, your people, for a seven-year period of time. And he's going to allow them to sacrifice again. And he's going to let, let them to go back. To, and by the way, that's not happened in 2,000 years. 2,000 years that has not happened. Back in 2007, 2009, well, actually, two, yeah, 2008, 2000, well, I've been to Israel 10 times, 12 times now. But a couple of those times, three or four of those times, I got a chance to go back into the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. And the Temple Institute, you can look it up online, they are dedicated to rebuilding the third and final temple. All the furniture is in place, everything that they need. It was a surprise to me the last time that I had the tour because I'm watching over the years this museum get better and the artifacts being be more detailed. The priestly garments are made. The candelabra is made. The laver is made. The altar of uh, sacrifice is made. Everything is kind of set up. And one of the students in the class asked, how long would it take to start sacrificing? Well, we can't just sacrifice... The, we have to wait for our Messiah. When our Messiah comes, then we can start sacrificing again. And, well, okay, so when the Messiah comes, which they're going to accept as the Antichrist, which is sad. They're excited, aren't they? And it's very good. Thank you. He said, 
We just can't sacrifice just because we want to sacrifice. We've got to wait for the Messiah. But when he comes, we'll be able to do it. How long? He says, a couple of hours. A couple of hours. Yeah, he says, in fact, we can actually have a makeshift temple set up. We have it all ready to go within a couple of hours, which our Bible believers back here in the state say, well, it's going to take years for the temple to be. They don't need the temple to be rebuilt. They will worship in the temple, but the sacrifices can begin almost immediately after the Messiah, their false Messiah shows up and says, go ahead and sacrifice again. So you understand where we're at right now. Look at Matthew 24, Matthew 24, verse number 14. Now look at this. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by who? Daniel. Okay, now we have abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel. Where were we? Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It's spoken by Daniel the prophet. Stand in what? The holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. And let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And let them which in the house up not come down to take anything out of this house. Neither let them which are in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye therefore the flight be not the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall what? Great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, not nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Don't get me wrong, folks. This here is dealing with tribulation period stuff. This is in the middle of the tribulation period. The Antichrist comes into the temple. He says, I am God. You will worship me. You can cross-reference this with Second Thessalonians chapter number Two, and you'll find that he is going to be setting himself up as God. And they're going to have to worship him or be killed. And there's going to be a mass slaughter in Jerusalem. Zechariah, Jeremiah, rather, Zechariah talks about the, the, the Jerusalem being destroyed. The women ravished, houses rifled, half the city going into captivity. When does that happen? In the tribulation period. So Daniel, going back to Daniel is interesting because when you see Daniel's prophecy, he says, wow, this is pretty interesting. So we do have the prince coming. We have the the coming of Messiah. He's going to come. And then another prince is going to come in this week, but he's going to cause the sacrifices to start again. So they're not sacrificed. You understand how confusing it would be from his standpoint to try to understand this, right? But we're looking back, we're like, well, no. Oh, we see a little bit clearer now. In fact, we have a pretty good vision of this. We're seeing 2,000 years of dispersion from Israel all over the world. We have now the advent of the Internet. We have the advent of of the possibility of a one-world government, one-world currency. Uh, The whole world will be under, if you would, the control of one person. All that's in prophecy. But notice how Daniel had to go to bed thinking about this. Look in Daniel 12, and we're almost finished. Daniel chapter, we're finished with this point. Daniel 12, 1. And at that time, are you all here? Okay, I'm exhausted. How are you guys doing, all right? Look at verse number 1. Daniel 12, 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. Who's that? That's Israel. Do you realize that God gives Israel, its own protector. Amen. And his name is Michael. Michael the archangel. 
<laughs> Realize the 67 war was just a, just a mess for all the Arabs to try to try to take him out. Why is that? Michael's there. You all with me? How about the 73 war, the Yom Kippur war, when, when, when every military around the nation of Israel attacked on the Sabbath day and they couldn't get it done. Why? Michael's there. He's standing for the people, thy people. That's pretty good, isn't it? That Michael, the archangel. We're not talking about just a, he's one of the most three powerful angels in heaven. You got Lucifer, which became the devil. You got Gabriel and Michael. Michael, the archangel, powerful military angel. You're not going to mess with Israel. Michael's there. Are you all here? Okay, now, I'm just saying, okay? Yeah, that's why you stand with Israel. Michael's there, which, which is backed by God. And there should be a time of trouble. Such, now listen to this, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Every one of them that are found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's the resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Right next to that, watch this if you want. Two resurrections. There's only two. Okay? The resurrection of the damned, the resurrection of the just. Verse number two is another cross reference to that very point. Verse three. And they that be wise shall shine as a brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But thou, old Daniel, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you, Daniel. Daniel, go to bed. Shut up the words and seal the book. Even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Cell phones. Amen. Then Daniel, then I, Daniel looked, behold, there stood other two, and one on the side of the bank of, of the river, the other on the side of the bank of the river, and one said unto the men, Let me see if I want to continue reading this. And verse number eight, and I heard, but I understood not. <laughs> then I said, O Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel. I'm telling you the second time, go thy way. For the words are closed up and sealed to the what? The time of the end. Let me just say this I feel bad for Daniel. He gets the revelation, he gets the prophecy, but he doesn't understand it. And we do. We get to get this. He says it'll be the time of the end. In fact, he says when we get to the end, knowledge shall be increased and many shall run to and fro. I'll be able to get on an airplane. I have an old book in my office. Uh, I love old history books. And I have a, a book dated... The copyright was like 1886. And in this book, this history book, they said something like this. Well, in these days, we can travel in four days to California at 14 miles an hour. And it's incredible to be able to do that. And we never had that before. I'm like, wow. Y'all with me? I think it's 26 miles an hour that they were able to travel. <laughs> Man, that's an old book. <laughs> we're moving to and fro. Daniel, shut up the words. Just seal the book. It's, it's, it's really not for you, but it's for the time of the end. Here's, guys, ladies and gentlemen, here's why salvation is so great, because it was prophesied. It was pro- prophesied 3,500 years ago. And, and the question that we have today, to people perhaps that have no depth of Scripture, they'll say things, well, what if Christianity is not really true? They don't know the Bible. They just don't know the scripture. What if, what if there's another way? There is no other way. 
What if I'm believing in myths and somebody pure? It's just psychological. What if I'm suffering for nothing? And Peter, when he was trying to lay them out on what this is, he says in verse, I'm going to read it for time's sake. In the very next verse, at first, in 2 Peter 1.19, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. <laughs> cunningly devised fables. We're not following a, a, a fairy tale. No, 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 no. When we have made unto you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitness of his, of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice from heaven, the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Salvation is great because of the prophecies it fulfills. That's point number one. Point number one. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't understand what salvation is, salvation is the, is the rescuing from sin. And I'm going to talk about this maybe next week because I ran out of time. But I love the fact that this book right here predicted this salvation. And though the prophecies and the prophets did not understand this church age that we're in right now, this dispensation, they don't understand it, but they knew something was different. There was salvation and it was a great salvation as Hebrew says. So we're in it, right? <laughs> we're at the tail end of it. We're at the finishing of the 2,000 years, and the, sec the second advent is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. The first return is going to be calling us out, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ after Armageddon. A lot here, but ladies and gentlemen, what is so great about salvation? Because it is in the Bible predicted. And I could have given you, I could take four or five weeks right now, two, three-hour sessions, and teach oh, how the amount of material that the prophecies, there's 330 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ and his first coming, just his first coming. And it's mathematically impossible for that to be, be just made up by a bunch of people. Impossible. We have a great salvation. 